Um, so welcome to RUF. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Thomas. I'm the campus minister here. Uh, and what that means is it's my job to, to get to know you and to try to come alongside you in your college years. Um, not only is it my job, it's my joy. Um, I was really privileged to be a part of actually RUF in college and it was life-changing for me. So it's really fun for me to get to walk alongside you in what I think is a really important stage of life. And at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And that means that we are a community of grace. Um, so wherever you're kind of coming in from, however you're feeling, um, we're glad that you're here. And since this is a community of grace, I'm going to tell you, I burned my tongue really bad, uh, like shame eating some fries in a parking lot earlier today. <laughs> so if I sound weird, that might be why. So because it's community of grace, I trust you enough to tell you that. <clears throat> So, every semester in RUF, uh, we go through a series, uh, usually from something from the Bible or a theme from the Bible. Uh, this semester, we're going through the Apostles' Creed, um, which, if you're unfamiliar with the Apostles' Creed, it's an ancient document uh, that kind of gives us the spark notes of the Christian faith. Uh, it hits all the highlights. It gives us the essentials. And we're calling this series that we're going through a better story, a better story. And what we're saying is the Apostles' Creed, it tells us a better, better story for us and the world that we live in. Uh, it's a story that accounts for our glory and our shame. It's a story that enables us to live with resilience in the present, and it gives us sure hope for the future. And if you were with us last week, we looked at the first words of the Creed. that says, I believe. And it says it again uh, two more times later on in the Creed. And we considered what it means to believe, and we learned that believing is receiving and resting. It's receiving and resting in Jesus alone. And what that means is that we enter into this story not by proving ourselves to God, not by saying that we're worthy. We enter into this story receiving and resting completely in what Jesus has done. And so tonight we're going to consider what it means to believe in God. What does it mean to believe in God the Father Almighty? So as, as we're starting, I want you to think with me for a second about the bell tower on campus. Bell tower, okay? Uh, I looked it up. It's called the Mueller Tower. Uh, how many of y'all knew that? I knew, I mean, Ellie, it's not shocking that you knew that. I don't know why. It just, it's very on brand. Um, it's called the Mueller Tower. Uh, if you don't know which one, it's the one that plays the cool songs on campus. It's over by the library. Uh, I remember I had a, a particular... Uh, time where I was walking on campus. It was like a crisp fall morning, and I'm walking past Memorial Stadium, and I hear uh, Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter, and it's playing, and I was like, I think this is the most magical moment I've ever experienced. <laughs> like, it's, it hits you right. It's like this nostalgic kind of college thing that everybody likes. Like, I don't think that there's anyone who probably has a negative opinion of the bell tower, but at the same time, I don't know that there are people who just, like, sit there and study it. Like, no one just comes up to the bell tower and they're just like, man, look at that thing. That is amazing. And no one sits there and can kind of tell you what song's coming up next. No one knows all of these things because, really, it doesn't really occupy that much space in our lives. But, you know, if you have uh, parents come for parents weekend, you might take them by the bell tower and be like, look at our bell tower. It's pretty awesome. It I bet you just think it, like, plays normal bell stuff. No, it plays songs, right? Like, you're a little bit proud of it, but it doesn't really occupy that much headspace for you. So imagine uh, this situation, okay? Uh, Chancellor Ronnie Green calls you one day um, because you talk to him a lot. 
Uh, he calls you and he says, listen, I'm going to shoot you straight. Uh, the bell tower is not in a good spot. It's not doing well. Um, actually, we need $10,000 in the next 10 minutes to repair this thing. And I just happen to know that your grandma gave you $10,000 about a year ago. And so, listen, would you foot the bill to fix the bell tower? And you say, okay, Ronnie, like, I'm, I'm going to hang up. Let me think about it real quick. So you hang up the phone, you start thinking about it, and you're like, I do like the bell tower. There's a lot, we got a lot going for it, it's great. But I don't, like, I don't know if I like it that much. Like, it doesn't really occupy that much space in my life. It's cool, but like, honestly, I'm not gonna go to UNL forever. People will forget about it, I'll be fine without it. So, obviously, you don't do it. Why do I tell this story? This is a weird thought experiment. Uh, maybe I'm just like, kinda off my rocker a little bit, no. Uh, what I wanna say with this story, I think the way that we feel about the bell tower on campus is very similar to how we feel about God, if we're honest with ourselves. It's very, very similar. You see, we might have kind of like, when we think about God, we might have a fond memory of him, maybe like a nostalgic feeling of a time in our childhood where it felt really easy to believe in God, or where it felt just really natural, or maybe you, you kind of became a Christian at some point in your life, and it, just, it was obvious right then. It's like, I believe in God. Of course I believe in God. But then you know that that's not how you always feel, is it? Sometimes it makes absolutely no sense to believe in God. Um, some people, you know, when we think about God, we're glad he's there in difficult times. But if we're honest, he doesn't really, again, occupy that much headspace for us. Uh, some of us might like the idea of there being this, like, personal force behind everything. But we don't really want to interact with it too much. So it's like, we're ni it's nice that God's there, but I don't really know that I want to have much to do with him. And for some of us still, God may be comforting. Maybe comforting to think about there being a God. But we don't really think about him that much. Other things take up space. And I'm not saying this is like a way to say you guys don't think about him. I'm including myself in the we. There's so many other things that I spend my time thinking about. And yet when we look at the scriptures, when we look at the way that the Bible talks about God, it's so different. Psalm 42, I think, is a prime example says, as a deer plants, pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I go and appear before God? Like, if I'm honest, that's not how I feel about God most of the time. And my suspicion is I'm not alone in that. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? So tonight, I just want to consider what the Bible says about who God is. And I want to consider, maybe we're missing something. Maybe the reason that we're not so preoccupied with God is because we don't really know who he is. So I just want to consider who is the God of the Bible. And to get at this, we're going to be looking at one of the most famous passages in all the Old Testament. Uh, this is quoted again and again. It's Moses talking to God. God reveals himself, tells Moses who he is. And so we're going to look at that and just ask the question, who is the God of the Bible? So let me pray for us real quick, and then we can get started on that. Heavenly Father, um, as we are here tonight, I'm just really grateful uh, for the opportunity to gather uh, in person, uh, Lord, to, to have a space, uh, uh, even if it is a really echoey and large space. I'm just grateful to be able to be here. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to understand more clearly who you are, um, and Lord, that as we understand who you are, that we would be changed. All of these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, so who is the God of the Bible? Who is the God of the Bible? If you would look with me to verse 5, I think it will be up on the screen back there, or it will be shortly. There you go. Um, so the Lord, it says, the Lord condescended, or the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Uh, so what's the context of what's going on here? Uh, the context is this. God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, have just been brought out of slavery in Egypt. They have gone through the Red Sea. God has given them the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like this climactic, amazing moment in their history. Like, it, it, was, it was the peak of their existence. And then immediately after that, they failed. Massively. They have rejected God completely. And then this interaction that Moses has with God is kind of on the heels of that situation. So I don't know if you've ever had, like, an interaction with someone where, like, you had an argument, and then you just don't see them for a while, and then you see, and you're, like, going to see them the next day, and you're just kind of wondering what's it going to be like. Like, what's the, what's the vibe going to be when we show up? Has enough time passed where they're not going to be mad? Or are they still going to be mad? That's kind of where Moses is at right now. Because the last time that Moses, uh, the last time Moses saw God, uh, he was given the law. And then he went down to the bottom, of the bottom of the hill, and the people had just gone in a completely different direction. So Moses is now coming back up, and he's like, what's God going to do? Well, and what does God do? It says that he proclaims the name of the Lord. He proclaims his own name. He describes himself to Moses. He comes to him and tells him who he is. And he tells him three things. He tells Moses his identity, his disposition, and his work. He tells him his identity, his disposition, and his work. So first off, his identity. Uh, He says in verse 6, he says, The Lord, the Lord. Uh, If you've been in a Christian space for any amount of time, Uh, You hear the Lord, and it kind of just goes in one ear and out the other. Like, it's just kind of an honorific for God, is what we think. Um, And it is an honorific for God that is used in the Old Testament. But but what's said here is actually slightly different. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, if you see it on your phone, uh, you'll have the Lord here in all caps. And when it's in all caps, that is a stand-in for the covenant name of God. uh, The Hebrew word Yahweh. And so it's not just an honorific, it is God giving his personal name. So God, on on the heels of the failure of Israel, he comes to Moses and he says, I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh. He says it twice for emphasis. So we see here that God is the sort of God that moves closer after our failure. He's not the sort of God who, who, who repays our failure with distance. He moves closer. He shares his calling card, he shares his private number. But not only that, his name isn't just a name, it's a promise to care. He says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to be your God. You are going to be my people. So God shares his identity, but next he shares his disposition. We see this in verse 6. It says that he is a God merciful and gracious. Uh, To be merciful, it means being willing to show favor. Like he is willing to be merciful. He is willing to be kind. And then to be gracious, it means giving free favor. It's from like kind of a superior given to someone who is needy, but not deserving. And then it goes on to say that he is slow to anger. Uh, This is one of my favorite uh, terms in the Old Testament. So if you were to have kind of like a word-for-word translation of the Hebrew, what it would say instead of slow to anger is long of nose. Isn't that a weird thing to say about someone like kind of giving off Pinocchio, you know? Uh, But in the ancient world, think about it this way, okay? 
If someone's really angry, their nose gets scrunched up and their face turns bright red. So there was kind of like an idiom for someone who gets angry a lot is that they have a short nose. They get angry really quickly. And so God here is described as someone with a long nose, someone who doesn't get angry very quickly. And isn't that remarkable to think about with God? That God is long of nose. God doesn't get angry very quickly. Does that fit with your image of him? I know on a gut level, a lot of times that doesn't fit with my image of him. So he's slow to anger. And then it says that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, God is not only merciful, gracious, and, and very patient with us. He is also abounding in love and faithfulness. He is committed. Uh, think about it this way. Uh, the term that's kind of a, a popular term when I was in college, when I was dating, and I still hear it, uh, when you're kind of in the initial stages of dating, you're talking, right? Like there's, there's talking and there's talking. Like we all know what talking is, okay? Um, here's the thing I want you to see. When it says that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, God doesn't just talk. He's committed. He's abounding in steadfast love. He, he's overflowing with love and commitment, constantly making space for people. That's who he is. So that's his disposition. But we also see his work here in verse 7. It says that he keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Uh, what does it mean that God is a keeper of steadfast love? I think it means that he carves out space for it. That God carves out space for people. That God doesn't have a, a disposition of, I don't need any new friends. I've got all my people. God is constantly carving out space for people to fill. He's got steadfast love for thousands. And then it goes on to say that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. So God is forgiving. And it has these three words, uh, iniquity, transgression, sin. There's a lot of overlap in what these words mean. Like even in English, it would be kind of hard to say, like, what's the difference between all of those? So why would they choose to use these three words? Well, the reason is this, because they want to be exhaustive. God is trying to be exhaustive. He, he's saying, there is nothing that you can do that will out me. My forgiveness outpaces your ability to sin. Which really is a remarkable statement. God is saying that there's nothing that you can do that will drive him away. You can't out God's forgiveness. So who, then, is the God of the Bible? Who is he? I think we see first off that he is a gentle father. He's a gentle father. I remember when I was uh, in sixth grade, um, I had kind of a procrastination problem, which I haven't really figured out these many years later. But especially then, I was a big procrastinator, and I was very anxious as a sixth grader. I also had, like, really bad grades at this point in my life. Like, I just wasn't doing well at all. Sixth grade me, it wasn't the best time of my life. Um, but in any case, we were studying, I believe in science class, we were studying simple machines. Are you guys familiar with, maybe I'm calling it something weird, but like screws and like a wheel, stuff like that. The assignment that we had was that we had to make some sort of invention using like two or three simple machines. Uh, the invention didn't actually have to work, like it was imaginative. Uh, and so I came up with this idea that I was going to make a robot dog walker because um, that seemed like a good idea. Uh, that'd be really awesome. I do have a patent on it, so don't take it from me. Um, 
But I, I came up with this idea, and it was definitely going to be something that would need help. Like, I wasn't going to be able to just do this by myself in sixth grade. And so I was a procrastinator. I waited. We had all of Christmas break to make this thing. I waited till the last possible second, um, until like two days before we're going back to school, and I tell my dad, uh, I have this big project, and I'm definitely going to need your help. And so what does my dad do? Uh, he, he's like, okay, well, let's make this thing. And so my dad helps me draw up a plan. He helps me cut all the wood, glue it together, paint it, all of this stuff. And I get the project done on time. See, what we see there is my dad was gentle with me in my anxiety. My dad was gentle with me in my procrastination. He, he knew what I was made of. Like, he knew my limitations. And he was kind to me. You see, and no father is perfect. This is not me trying to say my dad is perfect. But, but what my dad was doing, I think, was giving a hint at just how gentle God is with us. See, he knows our limitations. He knows our failures. He knows our anxieties. And he remains committed to us. He is a gentle father. And I just want to ask, like, as you think about how could we apply this sort of thing... I, I just want to ask, what would it feel like for you if the God who took up space in your life was described as gentle? What would it mean for you to make space for a gentle God in your life? Does that fit with who you think he is? And how would things change if that's what you saw God as? So God is a gentle father. But that's not all that we see here. Um, You might have even seen the second half of verse 7. Uh, talks about God not clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Uh, So I just spent a lot of time talking about how forgiving God is, how gentle God is, and then this is something that feels maybe a little bit different. What gives here? Is God forgiving or is he not? See, I think God is forgiving. It's very clear what it said here. God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He will forgive generously, and yet he will by no means clear the guilty. So how do we know the difference between that? Is it just like God will forgive you if he had breakfast that day? Or like if he's had enough coffee? Or if he's feeling like he just likes you? Um, What I'm trying to get at is God just like temperamental, and he's like, I'm just going to forgive sometimes, and then other times I'm going to be really mad. I don't think that's actually what's happening here. Uh, See, God is forgiving. He is scandalously forgiving. And he is just. And I don't think we're used to those things going together. We're used to kind of one or the other. Someone's really intense on following the rules, or someone is really kind and like a teddy bear who forgives you constantly. But what we see is that God is both of these things. God can at the same time hold out astonishing forgiveness and justice. How? Like, how does that work? I don't know if you guys uh, remember, uh, I don't know if you know the name Rachel Den Hollander. Anybody familiar with that name? No? Okay. Um, the 2018 trial of Larry Nasser. Anybody familiar with the name Larry Nasser? Okay, so Rachel Den Hollander was actually the first person to report um, a crime against Larry, Na- or Larry Nasser uh, as a um, sexual abuser. So Larry Nasser, over the course of like 10 to 15 years, Uh, had 265 victims. He was a doctor for USA Gymnastics, and he had committed all sorts of crimes. 
265 women and young girls this man was guilty of assaulting. And in the trial, the judge did something that was kind of new. Um, He let some of the people who were accusers speak to him, to address him. And Rachel Den Hollander, again, was the first person to say something about this. She kind of broke the whole scandal, and she got up and said this. She said, to Larry Nasser, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well. And then immediately after this, she asked the judge to give him the maximum penalty for what he did. What do we see there? We see astonishing forgiveness, and we see justice. You see, what Rachel Den Hollander was doing is she was giving us an image of what God is like. This is how God describes himself in this passage. He is filled with astonishing forgiveness, and yet he is righteous and just all the way through. That's what God is like. So God is about justice, but that's not all that we see. We see later in verse 7, it says, He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What does this mean? Uh, It means that God's not only concerned with justice, he also has power. He has the power to do something. That's what it means when it says visiting the iniquity. It means that he is going to punish people for their wrongdoing. But if you read this verse kind of in English, it feels really confusing. Like, is God going to just punish innocent kids for stuff that their parents did? That doesn't seem right. Maybe. It's possible. Maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe not. But what, what what he's saying here is not that he's going to punish innocent kids for the sins of their parents. Actually, Scripture is very clear. God doesn't do that. What he's saying here is that his standards are unchanging. His standards are unchanging. Sin is sin to God. God is not going to look at one generation and say, well, they're just doing what their parents taught them. No, he's going to hold every generation to the same standard. He will not allow a generation to continue in the same sins of their parents without justice. Because that's who he is. So who is the God of the Bible We also see he's a just father. He's a just father. But you might be wondering, like, why do we need that? Like, maybe a gentle father, we can kind of think, okay, maybe I have room for that in my life, I want that. But all of this talk of God being just, and and God maybe even being a little angry and punishing people, why would I need that in my life? Or maybe the question comes up of, like, why can't God just pardon people? Have you ever thought that? Like, God's the one who came up with the standard. Why couldn't he just say, you're good, it's fine? What's to say that he can't just pardon people? Uh, I just want to share two thoughts kind of on that. Uh, Think back with me to the Larry Nassar trial, okay? So imagine this is how it goes. Uh, They're sitting in the trial. He's just listened to all of these people talk to him about what he did to them. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking. It's gut-wrenching. And Larry Nassar just turns and looks to the judge and says, you know... All of this could just go away if you would just dismiss the charges. Here's the thing. Technically, before the law, he's right. But what's our gut response to that? 
no. Like, that is not okay. Like, he didn't just violate, like, American law. He violated, like, the deepest law. Like, that's not okay. And I want to ask you to think about why do you feel that way? Why does it bother us so much in a situation like that? Another thing to think about, um, there's a Croatian theologian. He has the best name ever. His name's Miroslav Volf. Pretty cool, right? Miroslav Volf. Um, He, in one of his books, he asks people to imagine that you're giving a lecture in a war-torn country. So imagine you're giving a lecture in, like, Ukraine right now. Uh, Everywhere that you go, cities are burned. People's sons and daughters are are missing or murdered. Uh, There are, like, old people who couldn't get out of hospitals that were bombed. This is surrounding them everywhere. And you're tasked with giving a lecture to these people on why we should practice nonviolence. Because God is love. Imagine that. You've got to go up there and tell them, we should practice nonviolence because God is love. And he uh, basically tells us that's not going to work. He says this, Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Could it be that our lack of concern for for justice, our our feeling of like, why can't God just let people off, comes from the fact that we don't really believe evil is a thing? That we haven't seen stuff like that before? Because in a place like that, if you try and tell people in a war-torn country, it's like, well, you know, it doesn't really matter that much. We shouldn't just retaliate. Their immediate response is no. Because there is such a thing as justice, because God is just. And it's precisely because of God's gentleness that he must be just. Think about it this way. If, uh, if you're a, you know, a parent of a child who has a severe addiction, um, what does love require of you in that situation with your child? It, it requires you doing anything you can to help them. It requires you uh, trying to help them to stop using. It might require you like helping them by taking away their car keys. It might require you checking them into a rehab facility. These are all harsh things, but it's not loving to not do that sort of thing for your child. You see, gentleness and justice require one another. Love requires justice, and God is both gentle and just with us. So, Putting it all together, when we've seen that the creed, when it talks about God the Father Almighty, talks about a God who is a gentle father and a God who is a just father. But I want to just name this, that for some of us, it might be difficult to have the word father applied to God. Like it can be a difficult thing, really depending on what your experience with your earthly father has been. Or maybe some of us, we might have difficulty with this whole concept of God being gentle and just because we're worried that eventually his justice is going to outpace his gentleness. Eventually it's going to catch up with us and he's going to be mean. He's going to be harsh with us. What help can there be with this? Uh, I heard a story recently about an uh, Anglican pastor from the 19th century. Yes, because that's the sort of stories that I'm into. Uh, a guy named Henry Francis Light. Um, he, when he was young, his parents split up, 
uh, they, they were divorced, which was a pretty uncommon thing at that time. Uh, but another kind of cultural thing at the time, whenever you would have a divorce, the father automatically got custody at that day and time. And so uh, Henry went to live with his father, and his father pretty much sent, immediately sent him to a boarding school and got remarried to a different woman. And uh, his father eventually started refusing to acknowledge that Henry was actually his son. Uh, to the point where when he would send him a letter at, at boarding school, he would sign the letters, your uncle, instead of your father. And he told people that Henry was his nephew, not his son. I, I just want you to try to imagine what that would feel like. What would it feel like to have your father disown you like that? Unfortunately, some of us in this room probably know what that feels like. But Henry Light later in life became a hymn writer, and he wrote some of the most beautiful hymns that we know. Uh, here's a line from one of them that is kind of shocking knowing his story. He says this, Father like he tends and spares us, well our feeble frame he knows. In his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Okay, knowing what you know of this man's story, how in the world could he talk about God being a father? And even more than that, how could he talk about God being a gentle father? How in the world could, could such a man with such a terrible father come to write something like this? And, and maybe, how can we? How can we come to affirm that God is our father if our experience hasn't been great? I think we can see a hint at the answer in another hymn that uh, Henry Light wrote. Uh, it's a hymn called Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken. And he says this. He says, Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Uh, repine's a very old word, I know. That sounds weird. But what I want to focus on here, think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. You see, he was able to be convinced that God is a good father because of Jesus. See, the cross, it's the cross of Jesus that it demonstrates how the gentleness of God and the justice of God work together. Because God was so gentle that he provided a way for us to be near to him in Jesus. And it required dealing with our sin and the relational discord and all of that that came from there. But God was so just that he had to destroy sin. He had to deal with it. And he did that in Jesus. It's as the song says, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus went to the cross so that we could know God as Father. So that we could have confidence that God is gentle and God is just. You see, Jesus went to the cross so we would never have to worry that God's justice would outpace his gentleness. And I just want to ask as we close, genuinely, I just want you to consider, what would it look like if this was the God who is at the center of your story? What would it look like what would it feel like for this God to take up space in your life? Because he invites you. He invites you to make him the most important thing in his life. And in that, we'll find joy. Let's pray.